Well, good morning. Would you join me in opening up your Bibles to Mark chapter 11, and that'll be page 848 on a blue pew Bible. And if you thought you're not hungry for baked goods at this point in the morning, just wait till the sermon's over. Generally, people are a little hungrier after then. Um, I wonder, I think like this, maybe nobody else does, but have you ever come across somebody, and one thing you observe about them over time is that they are just a great conversationalist. Maybe a weird word to kind of describe somebody as, but just the reality that whenever they are around someone, they have great discussions. And it doesn't matter who they're around or, or, or what kind of crowd they have or what people they're with. They just get the most out of people. And in a short amount of time, they just get to a deeper level beyond the sports and the weather and, and anything else, the kind of superficial. They can just go deep in a short amount of time. I, I think that's almost a skill, a gift that some people have. They just have good discussions wherever they go. And they're compelling and one thing I found, I don't consider myself one of this, but as a pastor and somebody who talks to people a lot, it's something I want to grow in, and something that I have just observed is that the key to good conversations, to good in-depth conversations on a regular basis is not so much saying interesting things, but asking interesting questions. Good questions are the key to good conversations. The kind of questions that expose, the, that bring things to the surface, that probe, that, that seek to understand, and then, and then listening to those answers to the discussions and then engaging with that. So let me give you just a very small example. Um, a couple months ago in September, um, our son Caden started preschool for the first time. And Rochelle and I picked up on our first few weeks of picking him up from preschool. Uh, this is how it would go. Hey buddy, how was school? Good. All right, what'd you, what'd you do? I don't remember. <laughs> like, dude, you were there for two hours, and like, we literally just got out. Like, what do you mean you don't remember? And we started to get frustrated at this. Like, he's nonstop talking, but all of a sudden, starting going to preschool, he's given us nothing. And so Rochelle and I, seeking some wise counsel from others, uh, were told and encouraged, um, you're asking the wrong questions. So you, got, you have to ask things like, hey, did you, did you play tag in gym class today? Who, who are you chasing? What songs did you learn in preschool? Caden, did anyone get in trouble today? <laughs> That's a good one. That was good. That was good <laughs> advice. Always an answer for that. But as you read through the Gospels, if you just were kind of just scan through them and read through them and just observe different things that you saw, one thing you would pick up on is that Jesus asked good questions. The kind of questions that reveal, that expose and probe the hearts of the people he's interacting with. Because uh, you might think that when Jesus came to earth and his ministry would just be walking into a room and dominating the conversation. Just walking in and be like, all right guys, I'm Jesus, you're not. Stop talking, let me tell you what you need to know. Like we, we would maybe read that and be like, yeah, that kind of makes sense, he's Jesus, he can probably do that. Um, we shouldn't do that, but he probably could. And yet that's not how he approaches his ministry. Instead, he reveals the hearts and motives of the people uh, that he's speaking with plainly for them to hear for themselves or others to hear. And he does it by asking simple but really good questions. And then closely listening to answers. And we're going to see a prime example of this in our passage this morning. We're in Mark 11, 
verses 27 through 33. And at this point in the narrative, we've been preaching through this gospel verse by verse. Um, At this point, if you've been here the last few weeks, you know we are in Tuesday morning of that first Holy Week. And Jesus and his disciples returned to the temple, the same temple that he was just at the morning before on Monday when he put on a scene. He came into the temple, started flipping tables, started chasing out the money changers, putting on display this kind of righteous anger. And the reason, if you remember, is that the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem did not have faith in God. They had faith in the appearance of being godly. Huge difference. If you missed last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen. They had faith. They did not have faith in God. They had faith in the appearance of being godly. Really dangerous. And Jesus hates false appearances. And so there's this story of the fig tree that was right with that, this illustration of the temple at the time, that even though this fig tree uh, was not in the season for figs, it was putting off the appearance that it would have them because it was in full leaf. And from a distance, it looked like it was blooming, and it gave off the appearance, this thing has fruit already, and Jesus approached it, and upon closer look, no figs, nothing but leaves. And so it was cursed. And now Jesus is coming back to the temple on Tuesday, knowing they hated him, and yet he's not shying away. He's courageously and boldly returning to the scene. So let's read what happens We're going to read a couple verses at a time and then unpack it as we go. We'll start with verses 27 and 28. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Our outline begins this morning with the question, the question. As Jesus approaches the temple entrance, he gets confronted by chief priests, by scribes, by elders. This is the top of the top of the religious leadership in Israel. Together, they make up a group called the Sanhedrin. It was the supreme court of the Jewish nation, and in total, it consisted of 71 men, and they were led by the chief high priest. And it, you, can, I mean, you cannot overstate the power they had over the Jews in Jerusalem. Because while they were under the authority of Rome, right, they were a part of the Roman Empire at this point, they, the Sanhedrin, was basically given full autonomy over the Jews. They could rule over their own people under the authority of Rome. So they had civil authority, they had religious authority, they had political authority, they had criminal authority. So this might not work as an illustration, and it should be a scary thought for you, but let's say you lived in Ridgewood, and your pastor was also your mayor, And he was also the chief of police, and he was the judge, and he was the top lawyer, and he was the president of the Board of Education. That should be scary for all of you to think about that. But the reality is it was a lot of authority on the chief high priest and a lot of authority given to his governing body, and they ran the show. And the only permission they needed from Rome was for capital punishment, which is where Pontius Pilate will come in later in the week when they seek to execute Jesus. But their question revolves around this important topic. By what authority, by what authority are you doing these things? This question could refer to all of Jesus' earthly ministry across three years, his teachings and and how he's kind of uh, really changing the game for them. But most likely, it's the immediate context of what just happened the day before. 
Jesus is coming back to the temple. So they get them at the entrance and go, hey, what authority did you have to do that? Come in here and just act like you can flip tables like that. You know, another way of asking this, for us who know the heart of the Pharisees at this point in the gospel, would be, hey Jesus, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? This idea of authority and the authority of Jesus has been this low-key theme all throughout the Gospel of Mark. A couple verses to throw up on the screen real quick. This is not the first time that Mark is highlighting it. Chapter 1, when he began his ministry, began doing his teaching and his works, we read this in 127, and they, they being the crowds, they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. Chapter 2, when he forgave the sins of the paralytic and the scribes up in northern Israel lost their mind as to how he could claim to do this, Jesus says this, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. The question of authority was a big deal in the first century, and, and the religious elite in Jerusalem were an oppressive elite, and, and they cannot understand how this man can just walk around, walk into the temple, flip some tables with such authority, when they, as the authoritative body, didn't give him any. So who is this guy? He certainly wasn't one of them, and he certainly wasn't from them, and they're upset that they are being challenged by a nobody. This guy is from Nazareth, man. He's a hick from the sticks. And people are actually listening to him and following him. Like, what is going on here? And as we already know, but we'll find out even further in a little bit, this was not a genuine question from the Sanhedrin seeking to understand Jesus. They hated him. And they thought that they would set him in a trap with this question. They already decided he has to go. They're going to destroy him. They just have to find out how. And they hope this question will have him dig his own grave by his answer. Because if Jesus says, um, no one gave me authority, then it will expose him as the lunatic that they think he is. This guy's just going rogue on his own. And people are going to see him as crazy. But if he says, my authority is divine, claiming to be from God himself, well, then they got him. Because they can charge him with blasphemy. And that is the most serious charge there was. And it was punishable by death. So, Jesus, at the temple gates, crowd around. What authority do you do these things? And they wait until there's a crowd. And they set the trap. And here, just observation, is the case of an oppressive elite trying to press down on anyone who threatens their power. And that is something that was not just in Mark and not just in the Bible. That is something that has been repeated again and again and again across history because when the power-hungry get threatened, it's a problem. And it's a sin problem, not a history problem. And the question comes across the same every time, just different circumstances. Who do you think you are? When Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a bus to a white person in 1955, this was the question. 
who do you think you are threatening the white power and privilege that sought to oppress? When the Nazis showed up at Corey Tenboom's family's house where they've been hiding Jewish refugees, it's the same question. Who do you think you are hiding Jews from us? The oppressive elite, the power structures that are in place that seek to impress. You see, when the oppressive elite get threatened, they will fight to protect their power, whatever the cost. Jesus, who do you think you are? By what authority do you do these things? Let's see his response. Verses 29 and 30. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Number two, outline the question to the question. We got the question, now we got the question to the question. You see, Jesus knows how to ask good questions, questions that expose, that probe, that bring the motivations of his accusers to the surface. After flipping the physical tables last week in the temple, he now flips the figurative tables on the scraps. I'll ask you a question. Hey, if you answer, then I'll answer. That baptism of John, was that from heaven or from man? Now, we all know there are times when answering a question with a question can just be a form of dodging the original question, right? There's a term that's come up in our cultural climate. Maybe you've heard it. It's called whataboutism. Have you heard that? We get asked a question, and we don't have an answer. So we try and redirect it. Okay, I'm picking on my son a lot today, but I'm going to go back to the well. <laughs> if I go to Kate and say, bud, you need your dinner. You're not getting dessert until it's finished. Well, what about Brindley? She didn't eat her dinner either, right? I mean, like, he, he doesn't want to answer the question. He doesn't have an answer, so he redirects. What about that? It's not what Jesus is doing. We'll see in a second. He's not dodging the question. In fact, he's very much answering them, just not explicitly yet, and we'll see why. But instead, he puts them in the very trap that they set for him with this counter question. Because think about it, in your Jesus' shoes, this is how he could have answered. Well, hey, we're in Jerusalem. Scribes, you guys know your Bible. You know your scripture. So go ahead and open up your Bible. Let me show you where I get my authority. Um, you see that reference to the seed of Eve in Genesis 3.15? That's me. A few chapters later, the seed of Abraham? Also me. Line of Judah, Genesis 49? Me. The king greater than David, 2 Samuel 7? You guessed it. It's me. Not what he says. Instead, he asks a question. Because this question will expose the hardened and sinful hearts of the scribes. It will show they didn't really want an answer. They weren't looking for an answer. They just want to accuse and destroy. And so he brings up John the Baptist. Where did he get his authority from? From God or from man? Why does Jesus go there? Um, And the reason is because Jesus' ministry has always been closely aligned with John's. Back in Mark chapter 1, if you remember, uh, we were told that John was given the task of preparing the way of the Lord. And John himself said this, After me comes he who is mightier than I. It's the title of our first sermon in the Gospel of Mark. 
and I baptize with water, but the one who is coming will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And the one who came after him was Jesus, whom he baptized. And not only that, but John was wildly popular amongst the Jewish people. So where did he get his authority from? If you can answer that, then we can talk a little bit easier about where mine comes from. You see what he did? He just turned the table back on to them. He reset the trap. He doesn't just tell them something. He forces them to think for themselves. He forces them to offer up their own perspective. You see, Jesus asks great questions. And throughout the Gospels and right here, his questions do more to reveal truth than simply giving answers. Let's see exactly what it reveals. Mark 31 through 33. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. We got the question. We got the question to the question. Now we got the non-answer. The non-answer that exposes the hearts and true motives of these high priests. You see, they don't care about truth. They never cared about truth. They care about themselves. And they care about protecting their power, whatever the cost. And so they get in their huddle and they think, all right, um, we never liked John. He made a fool of us. He drew all those crowds. We definitely did not give him his authority. We were actually glad he got arrested and was killed by Herod. We just didn't tell anybody about that. So there's no way we can say his authority was from God. But he was so popular. And now we've drawn this whole crowd that is right here. And people loved him and they memorialize him as a prophet. And prophets are from God. And they're stuck. And everybody's watching. So what do we do? All right. Jesus, we don't know. You see, they knew, but refused to acknowledge it. It was a blatant lie. They refused to follow the evidence, to consider this for what it was, because it would be easier, rather than just consider that, to just say, let's just stay, status quo, the path we're on. And it was out of fear. It was easier to stay hardened because they were afraid. They didn't disbelieve in Jesus or John, not for real theological reasons, but simply because they didn't like them. And they feared what would change about their lives if he was from God. If they are what they say they are, what does that mean for us? And it's still so true today. People often make decisions based not on rational evidence, but whether or not we like someone or something and whether or not we're willing to make changes in our lives. So even aside from Christianity and faith, just think about our divisive world right now. How true is this? If someone we don't like says something or does something, we are up in arms about it. We are so vocal. We are retweeting that like nobody's business. Look at this. Can you believe that? And if someone we like does the same thing, eh, we shrug it off. That eh, just happened once. That was like 20 years ago. It's no big deal anymore. 
We all make mistakes. And it happens in politics, and it happens in our families, and it happens in our churches, where we often refuse to submit to the evidence of real, legit authority, not because we don't believe it, because we don't like them, and it's sinful. And we all find ourselves in those situations. We can't just point to them that they do it. We do it. And in our culture, growing with each generation, we have an authority issue. Because we want autonomy. I get to decide for myself. And I don't want to have to change anything for somebody else. And I think that is the beneath reason why our cultural moment is so divisive. I think it's often why less people are getting married and why more people are getting divorced. Because we don't like change even if it might be best for us. And we can't broad stroke that across every situation. But generally speaking, we have authority issues. And this is why authority is still one of the biggest stumbling blocks for people to believe in and trust in Jesus Christ. Because faith means submitting to his authority. And then we do lack that autonomy. And things in our lives might have to change if we believe. In fact, I guarantee they will. And we don't like change. I want to decide for myself. I don't want to be told what to do. But, but here's the thing, if, if that maybe uh, is a place that you're in right now, like, let me just have you consider this. The whole idea that our culture puts forward of being an individual and putting that on a pedestal of I have control of my life and I live for myself, that is all a charade. It's false freedom. If you think about it, we are an imitation culture. In the name of doing things for ourselves, what we're really doing is we're seeing and observing somebody else we want to be like, and we're going to imitate them. And that's not freedom. No one is free from that. We are bound by our desires to be a certain type of person that we think will make us happy. And so we find others who we think are happy, and we want to be like them, and so we imitate them. And we're going to follow them on Twitter. And we're going to do the things they do. And we're going to go the places they go. We're going to do the work that they do in hopes of gaining the happiness we perceive they have. That's not individualism. That's imitation. We're not free to live for ourselves. We're bound to live like somebody else that we like. And here's the thing. We're all going to do it. The question is, who do you want to be like? That's why the Bible puts forward Jesus Christ as the only one worth imitating in such a way that will bring true joy and true freedom. C.S. Lewis puts everything better than I do, so let me quote him here. It's a longer quote. It's going to be up on the screen, but I think it's so powerful. puts it this way. I am not, in my natural state, nearly so much of a person as I like to believe. Most of what I call me can be very easily explained. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give myself up to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. Sameness is to be found most amongst the natural men, not among those who surrender to Christ. How monotonously alike all the great tyrants and conquerors have been. How gloriously different are the saints. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him everything else thrown in. 
a refusal to look on Christ and believe in him can most often, not always, but most often be traced to a fear of authority or a fear of change. And it will lead to a non-answer to Jesus, just like these scribes. And finally, the last half of verse 33. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So if you're still following, we had the question. The question to the question. The non-answer. And now fourth, the implicit answer. And he gives them an answer implicitly in this dialogue, even if it's not explicitly spoken yet. And the answer is that his authority is divine. He is the Son of God. He is the chosen Messiah that all of history has pointed to. Well, how do you get that? The reason is because it was implied in his question about John. Because if John had authority from God as a prophet, and John says the one who is coming is mightier than I, who's greater than the prophets? Who is the person all the prophets pointed to? The Messiah. The Christ. God himself and the son of the living God. So Jesus implies to these men, you think about that with John. You trace that out. And once you do, you'll figure me out. I am the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I am the one. This is just implicitly said now, but not explicitly yet. But in due time, actually just a few days from now, actually just a couple days from now, it will become explicit. Jesus still has some work to do before that day, but if you were to take a sneak peek ahead to Mark chapter 14, after Jesus gets arrested and goes through this sham of a kangaroo court where no accusations are sticking to him, and the chief high priest is getting frustrated because these people have no accusations that they can get him on. And out of frustration, he just blurts out to Jesus, are you the Christ, son of the blessed? And this time, Jesus says, I am. The first time he'll explicitly say it. And this will be the evidence of blasphemy they will literally hang him on and sentence him to be killed. But do not think for a second he was tricked in that moment. He was in total control and he knew it's time. It's time to die for the sins of the world. It's time to give a death blow to death itself by being crucified. It's time to carry out my Father's mission once for all. And so here are the choices to the decision laid before the scribes. It's the same choices that every person in the world still faces today. And the choice can be summed up like this in the words of Tim Keller. Either you'll have to kill him or you'll have to crown him. And this morning, if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ yet, I wonder if today is the day you're willing to revisit the decision. I don't pretend to know why you haven't, but I can tell you why you should. Because this Jesus has not come to take your life. He's come to give you his. It's only in Christ, faith in Christ, that you will truly find yourself in all you've created to be. And it's only in Him where you will find true freedom 
and can finally rest from the grind of trying to find yourself in a world that proves to be a bottomless pit and a peakless mountain. It's a search we are always looking, never finding. But in Him, your sins can be forgiven, a new heart granted, a new life as a new creation. And hear me, things will change once you do. And it might be painful at first. In fact, it very well may be. But just as a surgeon wounds in order to heal, so our Savior does His work on us for our good. And my plea before you is to put down the guard and crown Him with many crowns as the central authority in your life. And then for many in here, praise God, who have put your faith in Jesus, who have made that decision, the question for us is, is our life defined by a submission to him as the king and the Messiah and the total authority that he is in every area of our lives? And might there need to be this morning a time to rededicate yourself on this path, to repent of the places where you have tried to take control tried to be your own authority and not walked in obedience to his commands that he, have pl- that he has placed for your good. This message is a very simple message. Jesus has full authority. And that's for non-Christians and Christians alike. And submitting to that authority is not just a one-time decision you did years ago. It's a daily dying to self so we can daily live for him even in the areas where it might be difficult, that it might be painful in the short term, brothers and sisters, it is so worth it in the end. And many proclaimed Christians on any given Sunday are teetering on the edge of disaster, flirting with it by justifying regular use of pornography, by slandering others for personal gain, by being complicit in dishonest practices at work to make a little bit more money. Or maybe just refusing to trust God in the wilderness of life as we struggle through a difficult season. Listen, the list could go on. But are there areas in your life that you need to hold captive and offer over to Him in repentance? The areas maybe you've justified for far too long and you've convinced yourself that you can manage it. And you've made the compromises with sin. And it's not ideal, but you're figuring it out. Doing that is acting like you can tame a pet lion. You may be fooled into thinking you can do it now. And it's been 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years that you've been able to do it. But brothers and sisters, it's only a matter of time before that sin will turn on you and tear you to shreds. We show our love of Jesus by being obedient to his commands rooted in his word. And it is hard to obey. And it might lead to hardship in this world. But I'd rather suffer in obedience in the short term with God than suffer in disobedience in the long term without Him. And as we prepare our hearts to take communion together, let us be reminded that we have a Savior who is willing and able to forgive. That there's no sin that He won't say, I paid for that. I shed my blood for you. I love you. 
and I can root out the presence of sin that still remains, and I can keep you on the path of being more like me. That is the offer we have before us when we behold the bread and the cup. Jesus has divine authority. And the reminder for us all is that he's the only one worth putting our faith in, and that faith is displayed in obedience to his word. Let's pray.